Welcome to Equivalence by Evelist, a mission-based initiative offering an unbiased source of info to people who aspire to make informed decisions and grow their career in companies who care about gender equity. I am Sophie Luray, and in this podcast, I want to open a dialogue about the notion of equivalence and how it looks like in everyday personal actions and corporate decisions. I invite change agents, men and women who are making it happen in their team, industry, and communities to talk about their journey, their practical tips, their moments of doubt and epiphanies. I hope you enjoy it and tell us what you want to hear about at hello at evelist.org. According to a very interesting article in Harvard Business Review, women are the future of B2B sales. Although they currently hold less than one-third of the sales jobs, research shows that women salespeople often outperform men. In high-tech and financial services, a trend for a new type of salesperson is emerging. They are the customer success managers, and this role favorizes connecting, collaborating, and shaping solutions, all capabilities at which research shows women performing better than men. Although women hold only a quarter of high-tech sales jobs, Career data sources report that at least 50% and as high as 70% of CSMs are women. So following the COVID lockdown, the ways we interact with customers has become way more flexible, less travel heavy. And coupled with more women taking business buying roles, these trends pave the way for more women in sales roles. So since sales is a fast track to C-suite more women in sales will eventually lead to more women in the C-suites. So today, to speak about women in tech, and in particular in sales, I invited Sue. Welcome to Equivalence Podcast. And today I am chatting with uh, Sue. Sue Stevens is currently country lead for business growth at Facebook in Malaysia. You were named in the top 30 ethnic minority leaders in the Financial Times in 2017 for your active service in various organizations, mentoring talent from underrepresented backgrounds. You are currently pursuing an executive master's degree in organizational behavior at INSAD, and you live in Singapore with your husband. I think I can safely say you are one busy bee. <laughs> Welcome, Sue. Thank you so much, Sophie. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Let's dive in. <laughs> oh, yes. I love the way you always like get straight to the point. I love it. We have known each other now for about a year and a half, and I love it. Every time we speak, it's like boom, boom, boom. I love that. Tell us a bit about your background. I want to know where you come from and mainly how that has shaped some of your career objective because you're very strong in seeing and pursuing that career. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
I think I would have to take on from the comment you just made in terms of diving straight in. I think this definitely represents the fact that I am Dutch and that tends to be uh, one of the ways in which Dutch people uh, operate in, in the world of work. In terms of my background, so I was born on the island of Curaçao in the Caribbean, which uh, previously was a colony to the Netherlands. And I moved to Amsterdam at the age of seven. For me at the time, that was really going from seeing a lot of people around me that looked very similar to me, to moving to, for lack of a better analogy, porridge with some raisins in it. <laughs> I grew up in an underprivileged background, was raised by my mom, a single mom, and my grandmother. And I think bringing the question back to how this has shaped my career objectives, I saw the hustle in my mom, where sometimes she had two, three different jobs. And she never believed there was something she couldn't do. She would just go find out, and especially through relationship building, figure out how to figure it out. So if it is mm -hmm. one statement that I would say collectively sums up my career journey to date, I'd say it would be figure out how to figure it out. And talking about figuring it out, you figured out tech quite early on, since this has been all your professional life until now. Did you figure it out? Did you choose it or did tech choose you? Yeah, I love this question. And I would have to say, so I'll take a step back and I paint the picture here. The context was that firstly, before starting my career, I danced for a long time. And for the longest time, for 10 years, I really thought I was going to pursue a career as a professional dancer. Sadly, I couldn't because I got injured. So I had to uh, go study, if you will. And I chose at the time HR. And then sadly, when I graduated, there weren't very many opportunities available for junior HR professionals. And I started my very first role ever in a recruitment agency, which I didn't necessarily love as much, I must say. And then I recall after, and I did a couple of temp jobs there in Nokia, and then HP, which was my first really solid role in a tech organization, reached out to me. Mm -hmm. But in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, where I'm from, at the time, there was a really renowned magazine called HP The Time, translated that through English there. And when the recruiter called me, I remember thinking, oh, that's amazing. I'm such a huge fan of the magazine. To which the recruiter goes, actually, we're talking about Hewlett Packard here. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I'm not so sure. I'm not very technical per se by nature. So this is really my very, very first interaction of how I got into tech. Uh, but in all seriousness, I think my career, a, a combination of the context of what the economy was like at the time. And then I guess in HP, my very first manager at the time was a woman who I would say was my very first sponsor because later she moved on to Canon. And I was lucky enough that she hired me to join her technically for a role I wasn't necessarily qualified for, because recall, I was a recruiter and she was offering me to join her team as an HR business partner. So I would have to say that it's been a combination of a number of things, circumstantial, but also relationships. In this case, one of my very first sponsors. So it did chose you at some point and then you, you made it yours, right? In your notes, I noticed you separate established tech from new tech why is that is, is that because the the work culture different is that because the product is very different or was it just because you changed your positions in between you know your your time at what we would call a 
more historic tech and moving into new tech? I'll explain what I mean by old tech versus new tech. So I want you to imagine a human being. And as we go through life, we have different stages of our life. When I think of older, much established tech businesses, I think of an older individual, say a grandma, a grandpa, they might be having some challenges pertaining to, you know, they can't run as fast. They've got to be a bit more mindful about their health. And that to me represents the challenge of when you've been around for such a long time, how do you continue to optimize your organization for growth? And typically these type of businesses are super sophisticated when it comes to their processes and just in a different phase of their journey. Now, when I think of newer tech, I think of a teenager. And oftentimes, if you look at those large tech organizations of which I work in one, teenagers in the sense of with a lot of energy and zest and drive and just want to go out there and achieve things. And I don't know about you, but when I think back to me being sort of later part of being a teenager going into my uni days, I definitely can't say that I was where I am right now in terms of maturing in my own life. So when I think of that and I bring it back to younger tech, I think oftentimes there's a lot of white space in these organizations. They're not as much constricted yet by processes and such. And I have an anecdote there. I remember I joined my first younger tech organization and I joined after a company that was 80 plus years old, where we were very conservative in terms of how we would budget and how we put together a business case for the ROI. Not to say that this is not relevant when you work in newer tech. Of course, the idea has to be solid and it has to make sense in terms of ROI. I remember I joined my first new tech company and I was asked to be part of an organizing team for a kickoff. And my very first question was, what is our budget? To which the answer was, what you think is reasonable. There is just no way that would have been the case in one of the older, more established tech businesses that I used to work with before, which to me really showcases the growth trajectory, the ambition, yeah. the energy and the zest uh, to go. So that's what I mean by that. And the space, I assume as well, the space that it gives to young ambitious professionals for growth within these organizations as well. Absolutely. Continuing on that, I'm thinking of, you know, when we met, so I think it was almost 18 months to two years ago, we worked together on a project that you were leading for the women's group at Facebook in Europe, EMEA. I remember the, the theme of the conference was very interesting because it was all about belonging and we had many great conversations preparing and leading to this conference about you, about what it meant in your personal journey and how finding belonging was one of the career breakthroughs that had been a, a very important stepping stone into your life. So you mentioned earlier on that you were born in Curacao in the Caribbean and that you moved at an early age in Amsterdam. Do you think that move was what started this path to fit in, to find that where, you know, where you belong in your career? So I guess this is the first time we can actually say hindsight is 2020. <laughs> what I mean to say there is I don't think I realized it at the time, at a very young age when I moved. But when I look back at the various transition points in my life, one of the very defining moments is for sure 
moving from an environment where everybody looked like me. So the question around belonging, and I was also very young, it wasn't necessarily as present. When I moved to the Netherlands and I was more confronted with questions, microaggressions such as, oh, your Dutch is very good. And my response to that would have to be, well, it's my first language. So I think when I entered the workforce and a combination of having relocated from from the Caribbean, from the islands to the Netherlands, but also when I entered the workforce in any one of these organizations that I've worked to this day, it's not very often that I walk into a room and that I see another individual that looks like me, whether that is male or female. So I went on this journey and I had to carve out my own path of belonging. And in doing so, and I know you, Sophie and I, we, we talked about this, right? A huge mm-hmm. part of that for me was figuring out what it meant for me to belong to me as an individual in the world. And that had nothing to do with the way I look, but simply to own my story around these various intersectionalities that I have. I'm a black woman. Dutch is my first language. I would say if you ask me where I'm from, I typically say from Amsterdam and I've lived across different parts of the world. So I think the compound effect of all those identities, I've learned throughout the years to embrace that. And I really saw a very pivotal moment when I was placed on that financial times list at the time of how important it is to have role models. Now, I hadn't necessarily seen myself as one at the time, but when I realized and and I received such outpouring of support from being named on the list, I realized that part of belonging was stepping into action. And if there are not that many people that look like me, perhaps I could step into action and do something about that. And that part also really helped in my journey. And then I think the second part to that would be the authenticity piece. The moment I decided that I was going to wear my hair natural, and I'll explain for those listening who are perhaps not as familiar with this concept. As a Black woman, your hair is such an important thing. And... I, for most parts, had some form of chemical process in my hair because that was what looked professional in the workplace. But when I Mm. decided I was going to cut my hair and have it grow naturally, meaning the way I was born and how it comes out of my head, I just noticed that there was no longer this need to cover as in this was my real hair. There was nothing to hide from. And when that fell into place, so one, I realized I could create my own sense of belonging in the world and advocate to find and and bring on more people that look like me. And secondly, bring more of my authentic self to work. That really, really helped carve a space for me where I feel I belong in whatever room I step into. But this process, if I remember well, came as well uh, alongside a journey into work place culture because I I remember you telling me that in the first part of your career being part of extremely traditional one one of them being even super traditional like Japanese style of culture you felt like you needed to fit in that particular space and maybe you you want to talk a little bit about it but I love the story you told me about moving from Canon to LinkedIn and at the beginning being completely taken aback and thinking okay are these people for real (laughs) right yeah 
Yeah, I, I remember this conversation very well. Yeah, I, I remember because I moved from Amsterdam to London at the time to the HQ. And, and I mm -hmm. think typically in your life slash career, you find out where you fit or don't fit in based on what sort of allergic reaction it triggers in you. And I, I'm naturally a outgoing, bubbly personality. And I started to notice that not only was I dressing in a way that isn't necessarily myself, so very formal, very toned down, not very colorful, I also started to lower my voice and not laugh as loudly. And there's several of these examples, mm -hmm. which is really the notion of covering. Now, when joining LinkedIn, I recall people would rock up at work in jeans and hoodies. I never wore jeans to work. That was just, it wasn't even casual Friday. So when I made that transition and I realized that prior to doing so, there came a moment where I felt it just seems to take so much hard work for me to be able to be myself here. Not to say that I wasn't successful because I do think that I was able to grow substantially in my career. And it was a very pivotal moment in, in my career, I have to say and give credit to. At the same time, when I started wearing whatever it was and really realizing like, look, it doesn't matter what I look like, what I'm wearing. And it is really about the value that I bring more that cognitive diversity. That was what gave me that psychological safety to stop covering and to start peeling the various yeah. layers of the onion. I'll be very honest though, the first six months into LinkedIn, I genuinely thought to myself, when are people going to drop the app? And my husband now, while we overlap for a little bit, works at LinkedIn and I can tell you it isn't. That is well and truly a culture. Yeah. You told me, I remember when we were going through this journey that, like you said, peeling the onion, it actually kept peeling and peeling and peeling. And when you started your career at Facebook, there's other peels of the onion until that epiphany moment where you really, I think someone asked you a, a question, if I remember, I, I'm going to prompt you in, into telling that story, but that really led you into a further breakthrough about who you are and how you can actually contribute so much more to the organization you're in if you accept who you are. I remember this story so vividly. It, it was well and truly a pivotal moment in my journey of sense of belonging. I recently joined the organization and as with any new role and company you join, you're the new kid on the block. And I remember I was doing a lot of comparisons, even though I wasn't necessarily always saying that out loud. I don't think that's necessarily a wise thing to do. I would still in my head make a comparison between A and B. And there was this mm -hmm. one particular moment where I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues at a blackout conference around like, I'm not quite sure that this is the organization for me. I don't quite feel that sense of connectivity and belonging as of yet. And what he said to me was so profound. He said, you will feel that you belong when you choose that you want to belong and you want to get involved in being part of solving whatever problems and challenges that are there. And at, in that moment, I realized I hadn't decided yet in my heart that I wanted to belong there. And that was in the very first three months of joining. Fast forward in time, I think having made that decision and made that decision again when I chose to stay with the same organization and moving to Asia was one of the main reasons why I decided to take on that project that you and I met on to 
work on something, helping people understand that a sense of belonging can also be part of a choice. And really, mm -hmm. it is a journey that will continuously remain ever evolving. Yeah. And it made you a better contributor and leader for your organization as well. You're more rounded in a way. I guess that's what brought you to mentor younger people from underrepresented backgrounds. Do you see a mindset change in your mentees compared to when you started your career? And I don't want to generalize in terms of millennials yep. and what have you, because quite frankly, I'm a millennial. If I think back, though, to the mentoring, and I've had very different mentoring relationships and different people want different things, I do think that the mindset of demanding things to happen much faster is a shift mm. that I've seen over the last 15 years in my career. And sometimes there can be a bit of a do-it-for-me mentality when in fact, if I think about when I've wanted a promo or even so in moving across continents or whatever, I think we must always remind ourselves that ultimately you want to help the other person help you as well. So I think that would be one main thing that I've seen change throughout my career. And again, it does depend on, of course, the individual that you, you are dealing with. Yeah. So let's talk about something in your career that's quite interesting and it was bold. It was a, a big move a few years ago. You mentioned earlier on that you have done the first part of your career in HR and you decide to actually move to sales. So I'd like to, to know more about that and what led you to it and how was the transition. And please tell us the good stuff, but also the bad stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So. I think it was a very natural evolution. If you remember, I, I mentioned that one of the first roles that I had started was as a recruiter. And I think there's so much similarity between being a recruiter or working in sales. But really for me, the reason why I decided to get closer to it is I remember once receiving career advice, which was you either build something or you sell it. And that is really a way to earn a seat at the table. Now, I don't necessarily think that it is as black and white, but you and I have talked very often about if you look at sales as a role, it is one of those roles that appears to be very critical for women to make it to the C-suite. So I knew that yes. I built a career that was rather eclectic and I wanted to have more of a say, more of an influence in the business. And I realized time and time again, whenever we were at a point of having to decide whatever business strategy we were going to do, that when carrying a sales quota, chances are much higher that your voice is simply louder. So I decided yeah. to move and sit on the other side of the table, if you will. And it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. Give us some crunchy and exciting examples of that. Okay, firstly, I'll, I'll go back in terms of the transition, right? Like there's a lot of transferable skills for sure, but there's also definitely moments which are, I don't know if I can swear, oh shit moments, so to say. So I, I definitely recall one of the very first times that I had to present my forecast. And I thought to myself, does anybody realize I've actually never done that before, right? It's not, it's not rocket science. But I do think that it's quite common that as you become more senior, that it becomes a bit of a potential risk to showcase your areas of growth. 
So initially, if I'm quite honest, it was a bit of a lonely journey because I was figuring things out on my own. And at that point, hadn't quite established trust with whether it was my peers or others in the business to be able to say, hey, I really need some help here and there. Mm -hmm. And I vividly remember sitting in a meeting and looking at a chart and going, are they talking about my team? Because I'm not actually entirely clear what's being discussed right now. But I'd say if I if I zoom back out of it, like time and time again, vulnerability in that context has proven to have much more of an upside to a downside. So all in all, the transition worked out well, and I'm glad for where I am today. But even now, if I look at the market that I'm leading and the fact that I'm in another part of the world, let's face it, I'm not from the country that I work in. So I am going to raise my hand and have to consistently ask for additional context culturally, if not so specifically in the context of doing business in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's an additional benefit to be a woman in sales? And also, what advice would you give to women who are contemplating to do that, whether to build that career from scratch or to move from a a different position into a, a sales position? Right. So your first question, is it is it a benefit? Mm-hmm. Now, I think we all know like women tend to have different trades in terms of how they lead. And in terms of the sales profession specifically, I seem to remember from, from a really long time ago coming across an article on LinkedIn that talks about the skills that women might employ that potentially makes them a better sales individual. Now, I, I can't say that I agree or disagree because quite frankly, it depends. I've seen brilliant saleswomen and I've seen brilliant salesmen, but I've also seen the opposite in both genders. So that would be the, the very first thing that I would say. But my advice would be, and this is something that when I was a recruiter, a lot of my conversations with women was much more around having to convince them to take on a sales role. Because quite frankly, sales potentially to this day has a negative connotation to it, potentially thinking about that car sales dealership individual with that rather large suit who's trying to sell you something you don't want. Whereas when I think about sales and the conversations I would have with these women, it's talking about, hey, party A has an issue. Party B has a way of helping to resolve that. There's an exchange of value. Therefore, you must be compensated. So I think reframing what sales is in one's own mind is what I've personally found to be very, very useful. But also from back in the day when I was a recruiter, I think that would have helped a lot of women who then in the end accepted the role. If I think about advice and whether or not a sales role is the right thing for you, my advice is this. Don't think about that immediate role that's in front of you, but think about the one after that or even the one Mm. after that. What are the types of skills that you're able to build in the short, mid to long term that are going to ladder up to help you get there? The reality is if we think about our career for most of us, that will span a great number of years. And in those years and looking at how the world has changed, I think I've heard the word unprecedented the most last year you're going to have to continuously upskill yourself. So even if sales might not necessarily be your dream job and what have you, I fundamentally believe that there's, it's a profession that really helps to round you out as an overall professional to really get a good understanding of how businesses work. And ultimately, I think To Sell is Human, which is a book by, by Dan Pink. 
Exactly. It's all about relations and it's all about getting out as well of your own comfort zone to get into the zone of the person you have in front. And at the end of the day, it is a position that is when you're successful at. It's a protection in a time of economic turmoil because companies always, always need sales. You were referring to some of the ways the sales position has been seen for a long time. And to introduce our conversation, I referred to an article I I encourage everyone to read. It's very interesting in, in Harvard Business Review on why women are the future of B2B sales. And it talks about, you know, this trend of customer success managers, CSMs. And it talks about encouraging customer loyalty, but also helping customers realizing ongoing value. And that trait, those attributes of that new type of salesperson are about you know connecting, collaborating, shaping solutions with the clients. These are capabilities that are very much into the typical women's strength portfolio. So when you were referring earlier on to uh, the used car salesman, it's an interesting analogy. Don't you think that there's a part of it as well that is the comfort in being in positions of support? There's a risk in being in front. And actually engaging yourself, engaging you, like you were saying earlier on, deciding of the forecast and having to actually make it happen. Yeah, I I really agree with you. The accountability is massive because you say what resources you need in order to commit to a number and make it reality. And I think when you're in a supporting role, it is indeed much easier, depending on what your KPIs are, of course, potentially not to take full ownership. So when I moved to sales, and I still remember that there were various opportunities in my career to consider it, it felt to me like that saying of throwing your hat over the wall. When you throw your hat over the wall, you're going to figure out left, right, or center how you're going to get it back and really make it come to life. So it's like, okay, here's the number. How are we going to get there? And I do think it, it because of that accountability, it drives you to become very, very creative yeah. to help realize on whatever the number is you carry. It's exciting, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I mean, what better way for me than to, to spend the day with clients and with my team? Those are typically my most fun days. In terms of advice as well, what do you think is better when you move like this laterally from a position to a totally different position? Is it better to do it in a new company or to stay in the same? I have to think long and hard about this one. And I think it really depends. So I'll give you a framework which I loved using, which stems from my time at LinkedIn and at the time was recommended by Mike Gamson, one of the very senior sales leader at the company. I'll share the article with you as well. So you might uh, share it with the audience. So if I go back to my decision to move, at the time, it was based on an opportunity to really build out a market. And for me at the time, it outweighed staying at my previous organization because there was just such great reward. And I'm a builder by nature to go do something that hadn't been done before. But bringing it back to Mike Gamson's framework, which is a framework to help you take intelligent risks. So the first thing is evaluate the upside to the downside. Mm. And in success, you should benefit much more than you lose if you fail, which is something that Jeff Wiener used to talk about a lot at his time at LinkedIn. The second thing is consider the expected outcome relevant to the cost. 
So how likely is it that that upside scenario is going to kick in? And how much would it cost of you to be able to actually achieve that? Whether that is time, if typically when you move to a new organization, you've got to establish your brand again. There's a risk there that you might not in fact succeed in that role. Are there people around you to help support you? Mm. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is, what's the balance in your life? So too much risk or too little in your portfolio, it can, it can lead to suboptimal outcomes in your life. But I think there are times, different times in your career or in one's life where it may actually be much better to take on that opportunity in the same company rather than moving on onto a new one. But for me, this framework has been extremely useful. So evaluate upside to downside, consider expected outcome relevant to cost and balance, seek and understand what is that balance in your life. And ultimately for me, there was much more upside than there was downside. Hence, I chose to move to a different organization. Hmm, interesting. Finally, to talk about your career in tech, there's a, an aspect of you, you're a black woman. So what's it like to be a black woman in a sales career in technology? And how has it been evolving throughout? You started your career, when was it, 10 years ago? Uh, so come close to 15 years ago now. Yeah, 15 years, there's been a lot of changes in terms of representation and mainly inclusion, you know, in the heart of what companies are doing. Tell us more about that. I'll start with your first question. What does it feel like to be a black woman? The first thing that comes to my mind by now is, since it's very unusual for me to see another black person in the rooms I walk into, it feels nowadays like breathing air on a daily basis. It has become so normal to me. At the same time, there have been moments where I felt like I was questioned on my ability even before I opened my mouth to speak. And I know this to be true of people who come from an underrepresented community, not necessarily only Black people, that they tend to experience imposter syndrome much more. So I know for sure that I've personally struggled with imposter syndrome for a long time in my career and still to this day, I don't think that this is something that ever goes away. So I think the main impact that I've experienced in my career is preparation, 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 and sometimes even over-preparing because mm. I don't want anybody to question whether I'm in that room because of the color of my skin. And perhaps that is really, really sad, but I, I go back to, which is perhaps a much more positive note, when Michelle Obama came to Singapore two years ago and they asked her whether she ever experiences imposter syndrome, her answer was, yeah, hell yes. And they asked, how do you deal with that? And her answer was preparation, preparation, yeah. preparation. So that would be the, the first thing in terms of my experience of being a black woman in, in different rooms. Your second question around inclusion, is it? Yes. Just before that, I would say you get the double whammy. You're black and you're a woman because women already tend mm -hmm. to have imposter syndrome and, and over-prepare. Can I just come back just for a sec on that? Is that imposter syndrome fed by behaviors that you've experienced or sometimes it is just personally almost a, an insecurity that is not necessarily fed? What was it? Is it a mix of both, I, I assume? I think it's a mixture of both. I think on one hand, it's my personality. So going back to my dancing days, uh, I competed as well. While I did not pursue professional dancing, I competed as well. And typically for, say, 
uh, I think it's fair to say type A, high achieving kind of personalities. <laughs> There's always this pendulum swing, which is imposter syndrome. Like, did I do a good enough job? Did I raise the bar? And then there's the way in which the environment views you. So if I walk into a room and, and whether that is this part of the world or back in Europe, and I'm the one who is leading the team, heading up that business, I recall specifically in my days when I used to run the Southern European business that A, it's the woman who is rocking up to run that team and B, it's a black woman who is running that team that just walking into the building and being greeted at reception, it already felt like I had to prove myself as to why was I there, what value was I going to bring. So I think it's a combination of both, to be fair. I remember you mentioned when we were talking about belonging a year and a half ago that when you were a little girl, you were a very good student. So you were offered to go into a school that was pretty much all white, right? Yes, it was indeed. Uh, you have an excellent memory. Now, no, this is true. I think so going back to single mom, grandmother, and simply not a very great area to grow up in. So my mom mm. decided that my high school was going to be in a different environment because she wanted me to have exposure to different sort of people that didn't look like me. And hindsight is 2020. I'm going to have to say it again. But I now realize what I did and what I couldn't understand as a teenager, which is it taught me to get used to it from a very, very early age to be different, but also to walk into rooms where people don't look like me and to be absolutely okay with that and to simply move forward and do what I've come to do, if you will. So you recall that very, very well. I think that exposure early on, it definitely expanded my network, but also the types of people I was influenced with. In my own environment, potentially, it was more people who are not necessarily in a white-collar profession. And then when I shifted across uh, as a teenager to a different high school in a different environment, that was absolutely the the friends that I had. Their parents were doctors, lawyers, or whatever. And that just changes. I, I love, and I think I used this quote with you before, I do believe talent is distributed equally, but opportunity isn't. So the relationships Mm -hmm. you make along the ways, I think, really help you also in terms of meeting your own confidence to know that you have a reason and that you deserve to be there. And it isn't just because of the color of your skin. Absolutely. Yeah, to come back on equity and how, I guess, representation, but also not just representation, because diversity is great. But if everyone is in his own little group it doesn't really make a difference so inclusion is is really what makes the difference into the heart of a of a company shall we talk about that a little bit I, I, you work for a company that has been doing a lot of internal work in terms of inclusion in your views is equity increasing both in terms of representation and inclusion in the company you work for but also the companies that you are in relationship with that you serve that you work with I think last year we've seen more than ever an accelerated pace of change when it comes to the diversity and inclusion agenda. COVID-19 simply accelerated that and companies have had to respond to their commitment and, and whether or not they invest in having a diverse workplace. I agree with you, though. Just simply putting up a letter to say that you care about diversity is very easy to do. From my experience, though, it isn't as straightforward as that. I think different companies are in different stages. So, for example, at Facebook, 
Six years ago, our global chief diversity officer, Maxine Williams, joined the organization. And she's from the Caribbean as well, by the way. She is just phenomenal. Huge, huge fan of her and the work that, that she's done in her tenure uh, so far and continues to do at Facebook. But one of the very first things is to figure out as an organization where you are in that journey. I think you can't necessarily, yes, inclusion is important, but if it's around having the D and the I, you may be in a place where you need to increase representation and hire more people of diverse communities. But then typically what happens, as in when you go out and you hire and bring these people into organizations, what that means is that the different types of people don't necessarily always understand the, the ways of being pertaining to culture and food and communication. So that's one of the things that I think can put strain on inclusion and where biases uh, creep in. So if representation is lacking, like it's super obvious that hiring needs to be the key. But I think once these people have been hired and they come through the door, inclusion is even more important in order to ensure on that retention piece. Yeah. And I think organizations are doing better. I think Facebook absolutely is by far one of the organizations that I've worked with in my time, in my career, that does a lot along different areas in diversity and training programs and at the same time also acknowledges that there are still ways and areas in which we can do better clearly uh well i think our time is off it was great i love to talk to you sue it's always a pleasure thank you very much for accepting this invitation and to really open up and to be who you are and to give uh, our audience a lot of your experience. How can people stay um, in contact with you or follow what you do? Yes, firstly, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation and time really flies when you're having fun. You can find me on LinkedIn, Sue Stevens. If you type Sue Stevens on Facebook, typically that will be the one that comes up. Okay, thank you very much, Sue. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Sophie. Take care. Next podcast, I will be speaking with Irina Hever about cryptocurrency and in particular, Bitcoin. Here is a quick peek into our next episode. Luckily, that bro culture, that crypto bro culture, as it was called, is going away. Luckily, there are more and more professional women and professional men as well, because you have to elevate everyone. It doesn't matter, man, woman, gender, uh, religion, nationality, you have to elevate everyone. So I can see that the quality and the class and the education level and just the general attitude uh, got elevated uh, a lot and that's all thanks to Bitcoin almost becoming a traditional asset class.